Today, as we continue our studies in 2 Corinthians, uh, we're at the end of first section. The Second Corinthians have a three major parts. Chapter 1 through 7 will be one part. And the next Sunday, uh, we will begin the second part, which is 8 and 9. And then we will continue um, on the third part after that. As the second part is ending, this is, has a sharp focus and brings back from what he started from the, the letter, uh, which was his current relational status with the Corinthian church. And that because of that, we need to recap as the background of today's text. Today's text is 2 Corinthians 7, verses one, 2 through 16. But this is the context. The first one we need to remember, painful visit. Apostle Paul founded that church in Corinth, and he was the, not only the church planter, but the first pastor of that church. Uh, and, he, and he went on to travel, and he would write pastoral letters to the Corinthian church, as well as other regions as well. Uh, Paul's letter, 1 Corinthians, as we know of, wasn't that effective, so which prompted Paul's visit of Corinthian church in person. And during this pers the personal visit, it became tearful, painful visit for Paul uh, because there's a one person publicly opposed Apostle Paul and challenged his apostolic authority. And the problem was the Apostle Paul had an authority in spite of the fact that he had authority to correct that person. Um, he didn't because of his wisdom. Because remember we said that the church discipline is never effective unless the whole congregation clearly understands the direction and integrity of the church. The Corinthian churches were oblivious. They're wish-wash in a way that they weren't really rooting for the, the, the rebellious person, leader, but they weren't really coming around supporting Paul. So Paul was humiliated. And he left the church. Notice that this isn't just a personal issue of ego trip. Paul's concern for them was as an apostle, the chosen sent one from Christ himself directly, their rejection of Apostle Paul meant rejection of the true gospel. And all these uh, false apostles from the, from the main city, the Mecca city, Jerusalem, Judea, were proclaiming 
the triumphalism, our version will be health and wealth, gospel kind of false gospel. Paul calls them super apostles because they were just carrying this letter of recommendation, external uh, glories, and they always claim the victory and power. And Paul was going through the suffering. His theology was a theology of the cross, uh, the strength and power was revealed in his weakness, which is the main theme of 2 Corinthians. I think 2 Corinthians is really powerful in that sense. Through the lens of 2 Corinthians, you could see so many so-called churches these days are following more the triumphalism, the, the theology of glory now, rather than theology of the cross, that Apostle Paul preached, which is the true gospel. We need to be mindful of that. The American culture is leans toward to this success and wealth and affluence and comfort as opposed to narrow gate and narrow road. Christian life, if you choose to so, to follow Christ, isn't that glorious now? Our hope is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. Paul was still concerned. What did he do? Fearing that, that he will rebuke them too harsh in person, he writes a letter that is severe. And he said he wrote it with tears. Sincere heart, but it was harsh letter. Having written that letter, Paul was concerned. Will they accept this letter? What if they sever the relationship? And his fatherly heart grew in distress. And to a point that he's, he was sending this letter through uh, Titus, one of his um, protege along with the Timothy, the young man going to uh, Corinth and he was supposed to report back in the city of Troas but he's not coming soon he was so anxious Paul was so anxious in spite of the fact that the gospel was well received in that city Paul took off to, to, to Macedonia to see, to look for Titus. And finally, Titus meets with Paul and brings this such a good, relieving news. And then he told Paul that Corinthians have repented and they changed their hearts toward Paul and their longing to restore that relationship again. So 2 Corinthians was actually his response to this good news. And he's writing that. And in chapter 2, that he was writing about his distress, and then there was an insert. 
the important digression we mentioned. So we are actually coming back to, to that story after having have uh, this important di digression, which is probably the most important part of the uh, Second Corinthians, because it reveals the true nature of his ministry, which gives us a radical model for authentic ministry and true uh, spiritual leaders as well. <clears throat> so he comes back with that thought about Titus bringing the news. And then he responds to their repentance. So which gives us really important principles for true repentance. What is genuine repentance? Also, what is true godly reproof? I mean, this, the word reproof itself is quite foreign to modern-day Christians. But Apostle Paul, because his love for them, he had corrected them, harshly rebuked them. And what does it look like? What is true godly uh, reproof? And there are at least five principles in this passage, which are golden. Once again, I'm more impacted by this passage probably than, than all of you put together because it really moves me as the pastor and the spiritual leader of this church. So let's look at the first uh, principle. Principle number one, true godly reproof is accompanied by clear conscience and loving commitment. Verse 2, make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Why, why is this it's important? Because uh, many of us, maybe it has to do with personality temperament, and some of you don't mind confrontation and speaking truth, and some of you um, rather avoid all that kind of situations. But for those of us who might be comfortable, I don't mind speaking truth as long as it's truth, we need to look to this example. Paul is saying, I have checked on my heart. There's nothing in my motive and nothing in my conscience that blocks this. And before I reprove anyone, I surrender myself thoroughly in the eyes of, in the sight of God. Paul is saying that I have wronged no one. I have corrupted no one. Why? 
because these were the false rumors that the apostle, the super apostles were spreading and Corinthians were believing. I, I don't know. Did you get it? First glance, you, pro you probably don't get it. But the, the latter part of this uh, verse 3, I do not say this to condemn you. And he says this, for I say that I had, you are in my heart, in our hearts, and he says to die together and to live together. I don't know. Pragmatic way is it's a win-win situation. Come with me. We will succeed together. We'll make things happen together. We will dream together. But he puts intentionally to die together. I'm ready to die together with you. It's a commitment. No matter what happens, even if Corinthians rejected him, hurt him continuously, he was committed to them. Oh, this kind of reminds me what Jesus said in the upper room the last day when he washed his feet, the, the feet of the 12 disciples. Apostle John, he, the gospel writer, puts that he knew that it was a time has come that he had to depart this earth and he showed the disciples that he loved them to the end. That's how God loves us. That's how Jesus loves us. And there's nothing we can do which make him stop loving us. And for us to have entered into this, maybe I'm ready to reprove someone. I have this commitment to, to die with you. And to live with you. Rather than the dumpster truck mentality. Here's the truth. Here we go. You don't, whether you like it or not. If you don't like it, too bad. I'm walking away. That could be typical tendencies if you do it temperamentally. And some needs, because of that, loving courage for reproof. You know, for those of us who say, I really don't want to hurt him, don't want to hurt her with the truth. If you analyze that sentence a little bit, uh, that, that is a sign of self-protection. If I say this truth, that person will be mad and he or she will come back at me and then I will be hurt. So I don't want to hurt him is actually I don't want to hurt myself. If you really love that person. 
So in one side, some of us need loving courage to re reprove someone, a friend, a close friend, a brother, a sister, with courage. Some, on the other hand, need loving patience to wait on our, on our heart to be ready, whether than anger, whether than rashness, whether than harshness, there is a loving commitment continually breathing us. And now it hurts to say the truth because it, we love that person so much. But we got to say it. And that person is ready. I don't know where you've fallen. It could be personal, personality temperament issue. Some of us a little more comfortable with confrontation. Some of us are a little more comfortable of patience, waiting, gentleness. But let's not fool ourselves. But all of us, without an exception, needs teachable, open, humble heart. Do you remember this? Um, Proverbs 9 to 8 says, Do not reprove a scoffer, or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man or woman. He or she will love you. And I wonder whether we're the type of person who is wise enough to love, reprove that comes at us. And some of you might say, Paul, I, I know. It's a lot of misunderstanding, though. And to, that, to those of you, to myself, I say this. Just because there are bones in that meat, don't throw away the fish. Take the bones out and eat the meat. So in spite of the fact that that person might come with a lot of misunderstanding, a lot of bones in it, a lot of ulterior motive in it, probably, sometimes. There's still truth in that. That is thoroughly good for us. On the other side, Proverbs 27, verse 5 through 6, for those of you who say, oh, that's not my... Deal. Listen to this. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. In other words, if they don't care about you, they will butter you up. But if they really love you, they're going to make a wound. It hurts. But that wound is faithful. Trust that. Number two principle, it is always wise to provide affirmation and encouragement before and after giving reproof. Verse four, I am acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. 
For even when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, of your mourning, of your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. I think this is the evidence of Paul's loving commitment. Would you agree with me? He is not just putting this as a gesture. In other words, you know, you know, modern pop psychology has this too. To the sandwich approach, you know, before you give any criticism, gain one, one affirmation and sandwich approach. So we become like this. Oh, you know, I really like a lot about you. Uh, you're, you're really great. Uh, you're spurred. About what? Just you know, going at it, general, generality. But when you become criticizing so-called constructive criticism, it could be really sharp. That's not biblical principle. The biblical principle here is genuine. That his genuine motive shows in a very specific, genuinely heartfelt. You're longing for me. You're mourning for me. You're zeal for me. I have a great confidence in you. I have a great pride in you. You did so well having repented. And I praise God for you. That's what he's going at. I think for us to practice the practical wisdom, this is a sign, at least for me, to know whether my heart is ready or not. If I cannot be genuinely warm in my affirmation and specific in my encouragement, my heart is not ready. I need to let other person do it. But when we care so much, I mean, we all of us experience that. When we are reproving, correcting our children, in spite of our anger, in spite of our unbelief. Our house was almost on fire because one of my teenage boys reckless negligence. <laughs> it's not, it's not, sorry. <laughs> At least let's make that clear. We do have compassion. 
we do have a right approach. At least we wait until our, we come down, right? Principle number three. Godly grief produces true repentance while worldly grief produces a mere regret. And this is a central message Paul is going at. And we need to draw this principle well. Verse 8, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while, as it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces produces death. Godly grief or godly sorrow, uh, you could say godly hurt, all same meaning, has a three element to it. First one, it points to my offense to God. Not just horizontal relational offense. Because when you think about horizontal relationship, there's always tit for tat. There's always not a one perfect person and one imperfect person. Sin is done unto the perfect person by the imperfect. No. It's always two people involved. Which means that we could always rationalize. What about this? What about that? So this is the point that we need to remember. True repentance keeps us to think about our relationship with God. How God is offended as if we are spitting at his, his face. And number two, because of there's a remorse and the funny thing about this is that this remorse has, has an evil twin. Remorse at the, at the uh, front or external side of it, remorse and regret and even tearful side of it could be looking just the same. But the reason why, the re deep reason why um, godly grief has remorse it's because of my guilt before God rather than my failure, my misstep in my relationship with God. And, and thirdly, godly gr grief results in change of mind, which is the definition Biblical definition of the word repentance. Change your mind 
when you change your mind concerning particular sin, that you will turn around. And obviously, there is a different course of action. But it starts with change, changing the direction, making a U-turn. But worldly grief points us to worldly disapproval and remorse of the outcome. Have you ever done this? I had <clears throat> coupon. I think somehow I earned, you know, going to Staples regularly, and they give you reward system points and you know, all that. And then sometimes they will send you this, especially promotional time, 25% off or 40% off or even $10 when you buy more than this kind of thing. So I, was, I, I really needed ink for my printer. So I was looking forward to buy, you know, use that $10 discount. And ink is enough, expensive enough, I don't have to worry about buying other stuff. I didn't see the small print. Expired such such date. And it was a couple of months ago. I go, I thought it was several months. And I couldn't use it. I was just grieving over, remorsing over the outcome. How stupid I could be. Uh, if you can't relate to that, have you gotten traffic ticket lately? So when you got pulled over and you're speeding and you, you have to admit you're speeding or you went, went through the changing yellow to red light and you know you're guilty but you are sad because you're caught. Not, you're not sad because you had violated the law and then you're looking at the ticket you know Ugh. Remorse. And then you will even say that I'll never do this again. Why? Not because you offended God? And, but because it's tickets too expensive. And maybe you are late and you just, oh, just this time I'm going to go to the carpool lane through this. I, I'm confessing my sin, okay? <laughs> That $395 most painful thing that I ever paid several years ago. Oh. And I rationalized. It's not fair. I, t I was talking to an officer. I'm going to this and you know, doing that. I never go through this carpool lane and I explained myself over and over with a smile. Have a nice day, sir. <laughs> Which, which um, the evil twin I talked about was we could be remorseful but it could be false repentance. There's a biblical example I, I think very clear uh, uh, an example of worldly grief is Matthew 27 verse 3 through 5 familiar story Judas Iscariot who betrayed um, saw that Jesus was condemned. He changed his mind. Uh, by the way, 
in Greek, he changed his mind is not the word repentance. The similar way of the evil twin happens, he, he, he regretted what he did. It's, that's what it means. He didn't change mind about his sin. And brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Man, this twin looks the same. He's confessing his sin. I have sinned by betraying, betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed. And he, and he went and hanged himself. The result of worldly grief leading to death. He really didn't repent. He had a remorse and re regretted. But example for godly grief is Peter. Mark chapter 14, verse 71 to 72. But he, Peter, began to invoke a curse on himself and to share, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. He broke down and wept is not the evidence of his true repentance. The true repentance shows the changes after every single gospel, four gospels, has the story of Apostle Paul's denial of Jesus three times. And then it's not, it doesn't take insightful theologian to think, how did that happen? When Jesus showed up at the Sea of Galilee after the resurrection, he asked him, do you love me? Three times. And he restored, reinstalled his leadership in, for the church. Feed my sheep and shepherd my sheep. And his prediction is, Peter, you will deny me three times before the rooster crows twice. But when you are restored, this is Jesus' prediction and prophecy. Strengthen your brothers. Jesus knew that Peter will return. Can you picture this? So many gatherings of early church, Peter stood up. This, brothers and sisters, this is how I denied my Lord Jesus. In detail, he, stole, he told the story over and over. He was not so much about hiding his sin or protecting himself, his, his reputation. Yes, there was evidence of real changes. 
Principle number four. True repentance bears internal and external fruit. By fruit, I mean real changes. Verse 11. For see what earnest this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to, to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did wrong, the rebellious leader who opposed, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong himself, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. Do do you see the internal changes, internal fruit? The way they felt about what they have done, there is a clear change of mind in that. For example, when he said, what indignation? What indignation is mean? Holy fear. I felt that maybe some of you guys felt it already. When you did something stupid, something so dumb in the sight of God, and having realized, come to realization, how that was unwise and stupid and destructive in your relationship with others, you are mad. There's a holy anger toward that act, that sin that you have committed. That's the internal changes. What fear? You are, you used to rationalize everything. I don't care. And all of a sudden, you're fearful of the Lord. The fear and trembling is there, internal things. What zeal? Well, usually the zeal is prescribed to the Lord, right? They were just passionate about restoring Relationship with the Paul. And what punishment they were readily acted upon confronting that rebellious person. And every point they have proved themselves innocent, meaning that they clearly showed change of mind, obedience in that matter. I, I'm turning to Jesus again, lest you, some of you have a doubt that Paul's another extreme person. This is our Lord Jesus himself, Matthew 21, verse 8, 28 through 31. He gives this parable. What do you think? A man had two sons. And he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir. 
but he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. Who are you? Who is he referring to when he said before you? People who study the scripture, people who proclaim to follow the law of God. Maybe applying to us. Yes, I follow Jesus. Yes, scripture has all supreme authority. What scripture says, I will do. Then we don't do. It's better to have a, one way of thought and then change your mind. In other words, obedience is better than sacrifice. Religious worship, we ought to do on a regular basis. And obeying the will of God in everyday life. It's better than religious worship. Principle number five. True repentance results in ramifications of edifying others. Verse 13b below. And besides our own comfort, we rejoiced still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boast I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is, is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you have received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. Did you notice this? Their true repentance had affected beyond the immediate circle of relationship between Paul and the Corinthian church. Even Titus, even the churches who heard about others, other churches who heard about their restored relationship because of true repentance. There's unity. There's building up of each other. I, always what I'm concerned most about our church is the unity. When you see a divisive spirit, it's a danger sign for our church. That includes me. 
the small things how people say, including me, could divide the church. When we are truly repentant toward God in our relationship, the ramification is clear. The body of Christ is being built up, edified. The unity is clear evidence. I need to bring this to earth a little bit in our daily lives, lest you think this is just applicable to people like Apostle Paul. Um, for those of you who know me, you know, a very bright light, I'm a man of conviction. In a very negative light, or maybe more <laughs> blatantly realistic light, I could be stubborn in my way. And I have chips on my shoulder as a youngest one in the family to prove myself all through my life. Anyone telling me what to do, I just don't like it. Especially my brother, who's only one and a half year older than me. In hindsight, I was a fool who hated the one who reproved me. But about 12, 13 years ago, and maybe even more than that, around that time, when my midlife funk had began because of my brother's reproof. And he did it in a right way. He said this. At my previous church was growing like crazy. Rapid growth. So how you, how's your church doing? And I was so enthusiastically how exciting it is experiencing, you know, we have, in one Sunday, we have more than 80, 90, 100 person. We ran out of chair and we're excited. And then he said, oh, Paul, uh, you guys must be doing something right. I'm proud of you. Affirmation, right? <laughs> and he goes, let me ask you something. Are those people, are they all becoming like Christ? Or becoming like you. You seem always busy and driven. That one sentence what, poked my heart. I couldn't shake it off. I, I was very defensive at that moment, probably. But I started waking up thinking about that question. I couldn't go back to sleep 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock in the morning. Why am I doing this? If I'm really bringing a bunch of people who are busy and driven and rather than becoming like Christ that I don't like about this driven side of me. And by the way, which led me into free fall and start of this church and doing church very differently. I'm e eternally grateful for that reproof. 
Around the same time when I was visiting Wade and Helen, I still remember those two things were kind of like become a pinball in my, in my, uh, in the middle of the night, waking up and going back to sleep. Wade's passionate about family. So I always admired Wade. I said, how's your family life? How, how's your wife doing? How are your kids doing? And, and I, once again, I said, oh, I've been really busy. Once things slow down, I'm going to spend time to do this way. This. And then Wade, once again, without... Um, a blink of his eyes and just nonchalantly said, Brother, you said five you said that same thing five years ago. Are you gonna say that in five years later again? So once again, that's another ouch. Um, because of that experience with my brother, my relationship with my brother has changed quite a bit. And as you know, he went through so much suffering, he became my spiritual mentor. I long to see him. You know, today I'll, 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 you know, visit and see him again. And even after our relationship changed, um, for the sake of edification of a church, I'm going. Not, I'm not going to identify what it is that he was confronting me because uh, if I share that. The gray area of that might unnecessarily bring false guilt on some of you. He just looked at me and said, Paul, don't shake it off. Know that this is your spiritual problem. When, you, when he said things like, I couldn't take it off. But by the grace of God, I learned to accept it. And by the mercy of God, my life has been changed. There is a ramification of that. If you really want to know, come talk to me in person. And I'll, I'll share the details. And you will, you will see how clearly the changes have come about in my life. On Wednesday, the uh, Second Timothy chapter 4 preached the word section. We were sharing our gospel, uh, you know, applications. And the question that I asked, the, the word reprove comes up. Has anyone reproved you in this way? And to my delight, a couple of people shared about how I reproved. Kind of honestly humbling aspect. And I'm glad that it, I wasn't in it because I totally don't remember that moment. I have no recollection of that moment what I said, how I said it. But that became, produced a, a godly grief in that person. Brothers and sisters, 
wouldn't you like to lead, live a, a real, authentic Christian life? Something we and I agree is we don't like phonies, right? Let's live, follow Christ with true repentance and true godly reproof. In, in the end of all, God will be glorified. I close with this quote from Charles Spurgeon, who writes, True repentance has a distinct and constant reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. If you repent of sin without looking to Christ, away with your repentance. <clears throat> If you are so lamenting your sin as to forget the Savior, you have a need to begin all this work over again. Whenever we repent of sin, we must have one eye upon sin and another upon the cross. Or, better still, let us have both eyes upon Christ, seeing our sin punished in punished in him, and by no means let us look at sin except as we look at Jesus. A man who hates sin, just as a murderer hates the gallows, but this does not prove repentance. If I hate sin because of the punishment, I have not repent, repented of sin. I merely Regret that God is just. Ooh, that's good. <clears throat> but if I can see sin as an offense against Jesus Christ and loathe myself because I have wounded him, then I have true brokenness of heart. If I see the Savior and believe that those thorns upon his head were put there by my sinful words, if I believe that those wounds in his heart's heart were pierced by my heart's sins, if I believe that those wounds in his feet were made by my wandering steps, and that wounds in his hands were made by my sinful deeds, then I repent after a right fashion. Only under the cross can you repent. Repentance elsewhere is remorse, which clings to the sin and only dreads the punishment. Let us then seek under God to have a hatred of sin caused by the sight. That should be S-I-G-H-T, sorry, of Christ's love. Let's pray. Oh, dear Father, thank you for this clarity of your word and guidance of the scripture. And as we pray for our church to be real and to be not united and to be led by the Spirit, we all surrender equally under your feet, confessing our brokenness, 
Guide us, Lord. By these principles of true repentance and true godly reproof. May you be glorified because you are the head of our church and because you are the center and the reason of our church. And help us to bear the fruits internally and externally because of our repentance. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.